Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, the Dow 20,000 party is going to have to wait till 2017, although I wouldn't necessarily buy a ticket for January because we'll see the sell-off that uh, started this week may resume in the first week of the new year. You know, the Dow rang out the old year with another 57-point loss uh, to cap a losing week. It's probably the first down week since uh, the Trump victory. But the Dow now at 19,762 is the close on the Dow for the year. So we're now about 250 points or close to away from Dow 20,000. Although most people think it's just uh, a matter of uh, time. Uh, quickly, we can easily rally there uh, early on in the new year. But again, there should be a lot more selling pressure in the new year. I mentioned this on the last podcast because a lot of people who had gains didn't want to take them in December. They want to wait for January because hopefully the taxes will be lower next year. So why pay higher taxes sooner when you can pay lower taxes later? So we'll see what happens in early uh, January because if we ring in the new year the way we rang out the old, it could be a long time before we get to celebrate Dow 20,000. I'm sure eventually we will. I mean, even if we don't do it right away, I mean, by inflation, of course, you know, everything goes up when you're measuring it in terms of U.S. dollars. So, of course, it's inevitable that the Dow will get to 20,000. The question is, will it get there right away? And if it doesn't and it goes down first and we eventually get there because of massive inflation, what will Dow 20,000 be worth in terms of purchasing power? 
So that's a whole different story. It's easy to go up in nominal terms. It's a whole different thing to go up in real terms. But the Dow actually had a pretty good gain this year. I think it was up about, what, 13, 13.5%. Almost all those gains happening post-Trump. Uh, although the problem, I think, for Donald Trump, he's claiming credit for this rally. I mean, you know, what he should be doing is saying, look, you know, this is a bubble. I said it was a bubble when I was a candidate. It's still a bubble. Now it's even bigger. You know, but now he has, you know, he owns this bubble now. He has embraced it. Donald Trump has come out and said, the market is going up because of me. He's claiming credit. He's saying the market shows how optimistic people are because I've won, right? And he's like, look, if you want to show how well the market is done, you better start from my election, not my inauguration, because I want to get credit for all this. This is not Obama's fault. This is mine. I own this rally. So he owns it, which means when the rally goes away and we have a bear market, he owns that too. See, I mean, Donald Trump, sometimes he's able to wiggle out of the things he says, but this, I think he's put himself in a tough box here because I don't know that he can go back to the bubble talk of the big, fat, ugly bubble when he's been tweeting up a storm about how great the stock market rally is. Because now when it goes down, you know, now now I guess the markets are worried about your presidency. I guess they're not as optimistic now, right? People are nervous. I mean, you're, he's going to own the decline. You see, had he stuck with his bubble, and if the market collapsed in his first term, he could have said, well, look, of course, it was a bubble. I told you it was a bubble. When I ran, I said the market was going to go down, and it's going down. And it's not my fault because I inherited this bubble from Obama. That's what he should have, that's what, what he should have set us up for. Instead, he was quick to jump the gun and claim credit for the rally, and now he owns the bear market, right? This is going to be the Trump bear market, right? He's... We'll see if he can wiggle his way out of it. But I think he's set himself up for a uh, big problem uh, PR-wise when this market uh, you know, drops and he's actually in office and now he's got to deal with it. And I think the same thing is going to happen with the consumer confidence numbers. You know, he was claiming credit for how confident the consumers were. Well, they're going to lose that confidence quickly, especially if the stock market goes down, but also as the rest of the cost of living, I mean, gas prices are supposedly going to be up quite a bit uh, next year. I mean, year over year, they're already up dramatically from where they were uh, December of last year. January uh, 2017, gas is going to be a lot higher than it was January 2016. And that trend, I think, is going to continue. Oil is now, you know, building a lot of support above $50. I mean, we're trading between maybe 52 and 54, but I think we're headed much higher uh, in the new year. Also, I think the dollar is headed much lower. You know, it's starting to fizzle. The dollar uh, sold off towards the end of uh, this week, the last couple of days. It's looking very toppy. You know, there's still massive optimism out there about the dollar. You know, I think traders are as optimistic about the dollar now as they were pessimistic about gold a year ago. Because last year, that's all I heard. Gold's going to get killed, short gold, short gold. And gold, you know, had an okay year. I mean, it lost half its gains. Right in the back end of the year, mostly because of Trump, but it was still up eight and a half percent this year. It was uh, the first winning year in four. It was down three years in a row, so it was a positive year. It did beat the Nasdaq. The Nasdaq was only up, I think, seven and a half percent. So 
Not many people thought gold was going to outperform the NASDAQ this year. I think the S&P was up about 10, 10% or so. But the Russell 2000 was the best performing of the U.S. index. It was up, I think, 19%. Uh, so, uh, and a lot, again, most of that was post-Trump. That's where all the gains came from. But most people did not think gold was going to go up. Gold stocks still smoked uh, all the major uh, averages. Gold stocks at GDX was up better than 50% this year. I mean, it was up a lot more. Uh, over the summer and before the election, uh, but still outperformed even the best sectors. I mean, it outperformed the financials. Uh, energy was really strong, too, but I think the miners still outperformed energy. Energy and financials, I think, were the two strongest sectors other than the mining sector, uh, gold, precious metals mining. And energy, you know, that I understand. I, I own a lot of energy stocks myself, and I think that this energy uh, rally has legs. But I think this uh, financial rally is a massive sucker's rally, uh, nobody really understands what higher interest rates actually mean for the financial system, what larger budget deficits actually mean. Uh, and I think this is a short covering rally, and I think people just don't understand what they're doing. And so I think that uh, the honeymoon is going to end on the financials, and they're not going to have a repeat in 2017. So I would stick with the energy sector, stick with the mining sector, but I would be bailing on the financials. In fact, there's probably some opportunities shorting. Uh, the financials. I don't know. It's not probably going to be as good as it was in the, uh, you know, leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. I think we're going to have a currency crisis, kind of sovereign debt crisis. So it's going to look a little different. But, you know, all these people who are optimistic about the dollar in 20, uh, 2017, I mean, part of it is because they think that we're going to have lower trade deficits, which I think is so ridiculous because they never worried about the massive trade deficits that we've had all these years, right? Nobody ever thought these big trade deficits were going to hurt the dollar. But now they think our trade deficit is going to go down. And so they think, oh, this is going to be good for the dollar. Now, why did people think the trade deficit is going to go down? Because there's some you know, expectation that when Trump you know, changes the tax code, that one of the things he's going to do is tax imports and give credits for, for exports so that it will be a lot more expensive to import goods into the United States. And therefore, we won't import as much. And so the trade deficit will come down. And that may, in fact, happen. The trade deficit might be lower than it otherwise would have been. But I think the trade deficit is headed up anyway. I mean, look at the trade deficit we got for November. Huge, $65.3 billion. We got that number on Wednesday. That was a big jump from the $61.9 billion from October. That's a big number, which I think is getting a lot bigger anyway, especially if we get tax cuts and increased spending, which, by the way, we're going to get it, but not as big as the market thinks because we're too broke to afford big tax cuts or big increases in government spending. That doesn't mean we're not going to get some, but we probably won't get as much as people think. And, of course, it's not going to stimulate the economy. It's going to be another sedative for the economy, but it will stimulate imports just like it did when Bush came in and we cut taxes and Americans took the money and they bought imported products. After all, what else are they going to buy? Right? We don't make the products ourselves. And see, that's what's going to happen when the cost of importing goes up. It's not like Americans are just going to switch from buying goods made in China to goods made in America. No, they're just going to have to pay more for the goods made in China. And if they don't have the extra money, they just won't buy as much. And so what's going to happen as a result of increasing the cost of, cost of importing is that consumers will spend less and the economy, the bubble economy will deflate. Some air will come out of it. There'll be less consumer spending because consumers won't have as much money or won't be able to afford the higher prices. And it's going to have a negative effect on a GDP. And so even if 
the um, the, the trade deficits come down somewhat, it's not going to help the dollar. The dollar is going down regardless. And besides, even if the trade deficits come down, they're still huge. We still have massive trade deficits. So that weighs on the dollar. Not only that, but all the past trade deficits that have resulted in massive dollar accumulation. You know, something else that happened quietly during the week was China. And of course, the Chinese yuan has gone down uh, quite a bit this year against the dollar, along with a lot of other currencies. But they changed their basket. And they now made the dollar a smaller part of their official basket where they're pegging the yuan. They added some other currencies. This is going to weigh heavily on the dollar as the dollar's momentum turns. See, once the dollar starts to fall, if the Chinese aren't as pressured to try to mitigate the yuan's rise against the dollar, because now it's less significant in their basket, that means that they don't have to come to our rescue like they did you know, during QE1, QE2. So even though right now people are still all trumped up on you know, the strong dollar, once they realize that a Trump presidency is bad for the dollar, I think it'll be even worse than Bush. And again, you remember, Trump campaigned on a weaker dollar. Right? So the dollar's gone up, but he campaigned on a weak dollar. That's his secret for more exports, is to cheapen the currency. Right? Other currencies or countries are cheating. They're not playing fair. They're manipulating their currencies. What's he talking about? He's saying their currencies are too weak. They need to be stronger, which means he wants the dollar to be weaker. Now, you know it's going to be weaker whether he wants it or not, but I think that's going to happen. And it's ironic, too, that these trade deficits are rising. Trump's going to be inheriting a rising trade deficit. That is one of the things that he campaigned against. He was right to criticize the trade deficits, but we're not going to fix it with just tariffs and trying to renegotiate some trade deals. We need massive cuts in regulation and, and government spending, and I doubt we're going to get that. I mean, we might get some cuts in regulation, but probably on the margin, not enough. And we're not going to get any cuts in government spending. We're going to get more government spending. So government's going to be an even bigger burden on the economy under Trump than it's been under Obama. Right? And it's been a pretty big burden under Obama. So this, this is going to be a tough climate. And everybody, I think, who's, uh, you know, who's uh, excited about a dollar rally, I think they're going to be just as disappointed as all those shorts in gold were uh, early uh, or at the end of uh, 2015. You know, we also got some more bad economic news. Even today, we got the Chicago PMI. That came out. This was for December. Very weak number. So post-Trump, uh, it was supposed to come out at 57 uh, came out of 54.6. Big mess, uh, big drop from November 57.6. Uh, you know, new orders, you know, bad, uh, sales bad. Only thing that went up was prices. And this is a good, uh, you know, stagflationary uh, environment indicator. And that's going to get worse, right? More stagnation, more inflation. The pending home sale number that we got for November, this is the beginning. This is the tip of a huge iceberg. Uh we were looking for an increase of 0.5. We got a drop of 2.5. Big, big decline in pending home sales. Does not bode well for the housing market uh, in January, at the beginning of the year. Of course, you know, look at mortgage rates. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist uh, to figure this out. When now you've got 30-year fixed rate mortgages at 4.5%, uh, refis 4 and 5 eighths. Uh, that's a big move, uh, about a point higher than it was uh, pre-Trump. Obviously, it's going to take a big bite out of the affordability of homes, especially for first-time buyers. And another thing that Donald Trump is talking about doing that could also crush the housing market, part of his tax reform is going to be the increase. They're proposing a big increase in the standard deduction to the point that a lot of people that now itemize 
to, to take advantage of the home mortgage deduction will no longer need to do that because their individual exemption will be large enough that they don't need their mortgage deduction. Well, if they don't need that, then why even buy? Just rent. I mean, right now, the government pays people to buy houses because they give them a tax break. You don't get the tax break if you rent. But if you can't take advantage of the tax deduction, then there isn't that government subsidy. Basically, government through the tax code makes renting artificially more expensive than buying for a lot of people. But now if they raise that standard deduction and the average homeowner, therefore, is not going to reduce his taxes by buying a house, then he's not going to buy one. So you have lower demand. And of course, they're also talking about capping the deductibility on mortgage interest, which will hit the high end of the market. You know, people buying really expensive homes out on uh, California or, you know, New York or certain areas of the country where you have multi-million dollar homes. I mean, already, you know, you can't deduct the interest when it's more than a million. But if they cap what you can deduct for mortgage interest and uh, your state income taxes, then that can also pressure the high end of the market. So you get the low end of the market getting infected. So even if they preserve the tax deductibility of mortgages, but they make it so fewer people need it and fewer people qualify, then that's going to have another impact on housing. The tax code makes houses buying more expensive, higher mortgage rates, makes buying more expensive, and houses are already expensive. They've been they've been bid up, not by individual homeowners, right, because homeownership is at a 60-year low. It's speculators that have bought all these houses. It's investors. It's hedge funds. It's private equity. And, you know, when these guys sell, you know, interest rates start to go up. All of a sudden, they're not getting enough rental income to cover, you know, some of their debts or, you know, they want to sell these houses. Look out below. You know, there's no buyers. Plus, you know, during the housing bubble, when you had all these, you know, mom and pops, right, you had a, a fireman married to a school teacher. They owned three houses and they had lots of mortgages when, you know, when they went into default, a lot of times the banks didn't, you know, didn't sell because they were underwater and they didn't want, you know, they didn't want to put the house on the market. But if you own the house, no mortgage, you know, there's, there's no bank involved. You can sell it for whatever. And if you ever hit the bid, you know, these uh, hedge funds will treat their houses like stocks. If they got to hit a bid and take a 30, 40 percent loss. All right, that's it. Especially if they get redemptions where people want their money back. And if the money's in houses, well, you got to sell. So you got and, you know, if you got to sell right away, you just got to sell for whatever the market will bear at that moment. So I, there's a lot of risk in this housing market. And that could blow up. So, of course, you know, the Fed, I believe, will be coming to the rescue or trying to anyway of the housing market or the bond market or the whole economy when we don't get the four rate hikes that everybody is or three rather three rate hikes that everybody is expecting. Remember, they were expecting four rate hikes in 2015 or 2016. We got one and we didn't get it till December. So they're they're expecting three now for 2017. You know, I'm not going to hold my breath for the first one. But based on the way the economic data is deteriorating, you know, it's only a question of time before they start talking about rate cuts. In fact, I'm now starting to hear for the first time people talking about, wait a minute, if we run up the deficits under Trump, that's going to push up interest rates and that's going to slow down the economy. Of course, the sedative from higher rates will more than offset the so-called stimulus from the tax cuts or the increased government spending. So the only way for this fiscal stimulus to work is if we also have monetary stimulus. See, if we take a downer and an upper at the same time, they're going to cancel each other out. And in fact, if we take more downer than upper, you know, we're going down, right? So what we need is, you know, we need, you know, a double dose of the amphetamines and so the Fed is going to have to participate. They're not. They're going to have to change uh, their their tune or their rhetoric 
and start, you know, typing it up with, with more cheap money and, uh, and more QE, which, of course, is what I think is coming, and it's going to be the big surprise uh, that, uh, that is going to dominate the markets for, uh, for 20, 2017. Now, another problem for 2017 is going to be all these states, you know, 20-some-odd states that have increases in their minimum wage that is going to be kicking in uh, January. And so not only your business is going to be hit with higher minimum wage, but they're also going to have higher uh, energy costs and other prices are going to go up and they're going to be hit with higher interest rates. So the extent that you're an employer and you've got some debt, you've got a, you know, you've got a loan, business loans and you have to pay interest on the money you borrowed for your plant and equipment or whatever it is. Now your interest costs have gone up, your utility bills are going up, and now they're forcing you to pay more money for your minimum wage workers. Obviously, something's got to give and that something is going to be uh, the minimum wage workers' jobs. A lot of uh, pink slips are going to be coming out. Also, I think this is another disappointing holiday season. I think the retail sector uh, is a mess. So I think we have more retail layoffs coming to start off this year, just like we did last year. So I think we've seen the bottom in unemployment. And, you know, Trump's going to have to deal with that. He's going to have to accept responsibility. If he's t- claiming credit for the stock market going up, well, he's going to get nailed. Uh, with uh, the job market going down, if it happens right away, instead of what he should have done, it's exactly the same thing Bush should have done. The minute George Bush got in, he should have talked about there's a bubble. He should have campaigned, but he, you know, he won. But he should have said, "Hey, there's a bubble in the stock market. It's going to burst. You know, there's nothing we do about it. We had a bubble economy. We're going to have to go through a bad recession. It ain't my fault. It's Obama's fault. I mean, it's uh, Clinton's fault. It's Greenspan's fault. It's going to be a tough recession, but I'm not going to make it worse." by doing things to worsen uh, the problems just so we can have a short-term fix. But that's not what he did. He quickly tried to stimulate to make sure that we had a shallow recession so he could get reelected. And, of course, he made it impossible for McCain to win because then we had the financial crisis. Well, I said, you know, my last podcast, the bubble that uh, Trump is inheriting from Obama dwarfs the bubble that Bush inherited from Clinton. But instead of you know, blaming it all on the bubble. He's already embracing this. And so he's going to be in the same type of trouble when the markets go down and the economy goes down. And of course, you know, they're going to, they're going to look for the Fed for the same type of short-term fix, uh, hoping that he can make it uh, to a second term, which, as I said before, is going to be very tough. If this thing blows up the way I think it is, um, you know, he's not going to have two terms like uh, W. Bush. He'll have one term like, like the old man. And then who knows who's kind of follow him. It could be uh, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or somebody of that ilk. But, you know, I want to stay on this minimum wage, finish up this podcast and really talk about the minimum wage, because we have a great example of not only just why the minimum wage is bad, but hypocrisy. And there's nothing that makes me angrier than hypocrisy or hypocrites. But it's it's so great when you can see it and talk about it, especially when it's coming from Hollywood, right? Because this is a bastion of hypocrisy on so many levels. Uh, but let's talk about the minimum wage because, you know, Hollywood has really embraced the, you know, the $15 minimum wage movement. You know, they stand in solidarity with uh, the workers, the fast food workers. Yes, we want $15 minimum wage, right? And remember, you know, I was on The Daily Show with Samantha B, and they just made me look like, you know, the worst human being possible. They took my four hours of uh, interviews and turned it into just a couple of minutes of uh, me being a horrible person who wants to force the, the uh, mentally challenged, or whatever the politically correct word is, 
uh, to to work for uh, $2 an hour or whatever it is or eliminate the minimum wage. And I'm this evil guy, right? And of course, you know, as I mentioned, you know, I'm not the one that used the politically correct, incorrect term on national television. I mean, I still have people, you know, email, how could you use this term on national television, right? How could you say, and the, the term I used was uh, mentally retarded, right? But when I used the term, I said, hey, what is the politically correct term for mentally retarded? See, I was asking for it because I didn't know what it was because I wanted to use the correct term, but they never told me the correct term. But then they chose to use the incorrect term on television. So I didn't say that word on television. The Daily Show decided to air me saying that word. That was their decision. So everybody that was offended by that word, see, they were offended that I used it. Why? I used it in a private conversation. It was the Daily Show that decided to make that word public, right? Because they wanted to make me look like the bad guy for saying it. But I wasn't the bad guy. They were the bad guys for broadcasting it. I wasn't saying to broadcast it. I was asking them to tell me the term so that I can use the correct term in my sentence in case they wanted to use it on the air. I didn't know that they would pick that. But anyway, if you want to get if you never saw that Daily Show clip, there's a YouTube video that I did. Just look for it on my channel. Uh, where I responded to, you know, Peter Schiff Daily Show. I'm wearing this green shirt, like green and black check shirt. So I do a full, uh, I go over all the, the things that they did on, on the Daily Show. So I don't really want to do that again. But my point is, like, that's part of Hollywood, right? They, they had to really do a number on me because I'm one of these greedy capitalists who, you know, wants to exploit the workers, right? They, they couldn't understand all my arguments that were against the minimum wage. We're pro-worker, right? I am against the minimum wage for a number of reasons, but one of them is because it helps workers when there's no minimum wage, right? Because the minimum wage basically says that you have to sell your labor at a certain price, and if you can't do it, you can't get a job. So it makes it hard for people that don't have a lot of skills to get jobs. Because if you can't convince, hey, if you want a $15 minimum wage, if you're a worker, you've got to convince an employer to pay you $15 an hour. If you can only convince them to pay you 10, then you can't get a job. Well, what if you want 10? 10 is better than zero, but the government says, nope, it's either 15 or nothing. You find somebody who's going to pay you $15 an hour or you can't work. I think that's terrible. I think if somebody can get a job and the most they can get is $5 an hour, why can't they have that job if they want it? If that's the best they can get, the alternative is zero. It's not 15, right? So I care about people. I just just understand the consequences of the minimum wage. But this thing in, in California, in Hollywood, it shows that the liberals understand it too. Here's what I'm talking about. So the Actors' Equity, Actors' Equity is the union for stage actors, right? They have a lot of equity uh, people here in New York, where I am, but out in California, they have a theater scene. This is not the Screen Actors Guild, right, which is, you know, where all the television and TV people are. This is Actors' Equity for, for live theater, right? Now, a lot of people are members of both unions, and, of course, there are a lot of plays where, you know, you have to, you know, you, you got to use union people. You have one person in the union, then they all got to be in the union, right? And, and so they have union scale and they have all kinds of work rules. But the union decided that for small theaters that have fewer than 100 seats, so there are these 99-seat theaters, right? And they got a lot of them in the L.A. area. And what the union said is if you have a 99-seat theater, you're exempt from all these union rules, and in fact, you're even exempt from the minimum wage. And I don't know how, you know, the federal government, I guess, you know, looked the other way too, right? And so it was, you know, you could work for nothing. You could just volunteer and act in a play in 
a theater as long as the theater had fewer than 100 seats, right? So all of a sudden the union says, this is horrible, this is terrible, right? I mean, you can't raise a family on the tiny amounts of money that people are earning in these 99-seat theaters. I mean, sometimes they would get paid a little bit of money when they perform, but they wouldn't get, they wouldn't get paid anything for all the hours that they did rehearsals, right? So they made tiny bits of money. No, this is horrible. We need to we need this we need to make sure that all these actors get paid the minimum wage. And you would think that Hollywood be yeah, we want this. We need a minimum wage because they want the minimum wage for everybody. They want it higher. But what do you know? The screen actors, the actual people in the union, voted overwhelmingly against it. They wanted to preserve the exemption so that theater owners can go on exploiting actors and paying them nothing, right? So the actors were working for free, right? But the union itself overrode its own members, and they decided to remove the exemption. So now the 99-seat theaters have to pay minimum wage, which is, I guess, 10 bucks in California and rising. They got to pay $10 an hour for not only the production, but all the rehearsals. Whenever they're there, whenever they're rehearsing or performing or doing anything related to the production, they've got to get paid minimum wage. Now, of course, instead of celebrating, what are the screen actors doing? They're suing their own union, led by Ed Asner, who's a big liberal. They're suing the union to force the union to listen to their members so that the minimum wage won't have to apply to actors working in 99-seat theaters. Now, why? Why are they so against it? I mean, why aren't they saying this is great, right? All the arguments that they're, 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 they're espousing for the community at large, right? Oh, the, you know, they can say, look, you, you hardly earn any money as an actor. I mean, you can't raise a family working at a 99-seat theater. I mean, pay them more money. If we pay them more money, then more people will want to act in these plays. I mean, think of all the actors who will want to work. We're going to create jobs with a minimum wage because there's a lot of actors that don't want to work for free or, you know, hardly anything. But if they can get $10 an hour, they'll work, right? And, oh, it's going to be great for the economy. It's going to be a boom for the economy because all these higher paid actors, they're going to take their extra earnings and they're going to spend it, right? They're going to put it right back into the economy. They're not going to save it, right? Oh, that, that would be bad. They're going to go out and spend it. And so it's going to help the economy. And so everybody's going to benefit. So we need a minimum wage. Why aren't they saying that? Because they actually understand See, when it affects themselves, they think about it a little bit. Here is what happens in these 99-seat theaters. So you got some guy that wants to produce a play on a low budget, right? It's a small theater. They can't charge a lot. People don't pay a lot of money to go see these plays. So, uh, And they can't really afford to pay the actors. But the actors are acting in these plays. Why? Why would an actor work for very little money. Well, because they want the experience, right? They, they're young, uh, they, they want to hone their skills, their craft, they want to get better as actors, they want to have an opportunity uh, to you know, act and interact you know, and be in a play and do live theater. I mean, it's good practice, right? They're not doing it as their main job. It's, they have a day job, right? These, the people that are appearing in these, uh, these uh, small community theaters they, they have jobs during the day. They, they're waiters or they're bartenders. Or they're, they, they, they do this at night. Or maybe they do a matinee on the weekend, right? They're not getting paid. They're doing it for the exposure, the experience. Hey, maybe you do one of these plays and some casting agent happens to see you. And so, oh, this guy's a good actor. Hey, 
you know, let me, you know, let me, does he got an agent? Let me talk, you know, people have, get exposure. I mean, a lot of people get their start. It's like an internship. The alternative is you got to go to an acting school and you got to pay money. I mean, I think it's better to go in a play where you can learn to act from a director who might help you to be with other actors, to actually learn to act on a real stage with a real audience versus in a classroom, right? Being taught by somebody who's not actually out in the real world of acting, but who's just in the classroom. And so they understand this. They understand that if you force these small theaters to pay the minimum wage, they won't be able to afford to put on these plays because they'll be too expensive. They won't be able to charge a high enough price to cover the overhead of having to pay everybody minimum wage, not just for the actual shows, but for all the rehearsals, right? So they're against the minimum wage because it will destroy opportunities for actors to get jobs, even low-paying jobs, because they recognize that these low-paying jobs are just a rung on a ladder. They're an entry-level acting opportunity where people can learn to be actors, can get better at being actors, can make connections, can have a showcase, people can see them, and this is a stepping stone. And it's an incubator for acting talent. It also helps the rest of the industry that you have this theater scene that young people can go into and then work their way up. And it's, you know, uh, uh, movie directors or TV directors have this talent pool that they can draw from, right, and, and pull people up. I mean, but the same thing applies to all jobs. Everybody needs a start. Everybody needs to get on the first rung of the job ladder. Everybody needs to show what they can do and to learn from other people who are working. Getting your first job, even getting a minimum wage job, even a job for next to nothing. You know, somebody higher up sees you busting your balls and doing a good job. You get a chance, you know, I mean, you got to get into the workforce. You got to get noticed. You got to make connections. I mean, you're not going to go anywhere at home unemployed, but just showing up at a job. Even if you're still living with your parents, but you're showing up, you make connections, you get a chance to shine. In addition, you get to learn. You get to learn from people who know what they're doing, not from teachers who don't know anything, right? So it's not just the actors who would benefit from no minimum wage. It's everybody. It's the entire country. It's all the young people that want to get skills, that want opportunity, that want to be able to raise themselves up, you know, out of poverty and climb that job ladder. They got to step on the first leg. So all these liberal, bleeding heart actors recognize this. They recognize it when it affects themselves. They know, yes, this minimum wage is bad. Well, if it's bad for the theaters in LA, it's bad for everybody. It's bad for McDonald's and Walmart and Burger King, right? Everybody is affected. The laws of economics work everywhere. They don't just work in 99-seat theaters in L.A. So if these actors are worried that this minimum wage is going to put these theaters out of business and put these actors out of work and deny young actors the opportunity right, to, to become better actors and maybe force people to have to borrow money to go to an acting school because they no longer have the ability uh, to learn on the job, right? And if now a lot of shows, they're all going to be one-man shows. Instead of having a bigger production with a larger cast, they're going to have a smaller cast, right? It'll just be like, you know, a one-man show because now they only have to pay the minimum wage to one person, right? So if you used to have 10 people in the show and now you have one, there's nine acting jobs that are no longer there. So if the actors can figure this out, and it's easy, it's not rocket science, right? They figured it out. 
these left-wing, bleeding-heart liberals, when push came to shove, and it had to do with their own situation, they could see that the minimum wage was bad, and they don't want it. They want an exemption. But they still want the rest of the world to have to suffer from the same uh, uh, legislative plague that they're trying to get rid of. And they're suing. They're suing their own union to try to get out from under the minimum wage. Right. So what does this tell you about the minimum wage? What does it tell you? It's a great example. Uh, and I, I wish more people would actually cover this. Like Very little press coverage on it. Nobody talking about it. Um, but it's another example of left-wing hypocrisy. And it's there for all to see, especially with all this talk about the minimum wage. And so I hope that this story gets a little bit more more press in the new year. But I want to uh, take the opportunity. This is obviously the last podcast for 2016. I want to thank everybody who listened uh, faithfully throughout the year. You know, I still haven't recovered completely my voice, which is why I still don't sound uh, normal. Hopefully, uh, I'll regain my normal speaking voice uh, early in in, uh, in 2017. But I want to wish everybody a very happy uh, new year. And uh, let's hope for the best. I mean, even though I am not very optimistic on the near term for the U.S. economy, I think we have a date with destiny. I think we have a real crisis coming. But I am still cautiously optimistic that we can come out of it. Uh, I like having Trump there more than I like having Hillary there. But again, the danger is going to be that the free market, any kind of tax cuts, any kind of deregulation takes the blame for this crisis, which is going to be much worse than 2008. And this could happen in the Bush first term, I mean, in the Trump first term, you know, much sooner than it happened during uh, during uh, Bush, because he was able to to punt his crisis into the second term. But I think this time we're too deep in our own end zone. This is too big. I, you know, I, I don't think if we try to punt, we're just uh, the team is going to tackle us for safety. So the danger is that when this crisis hits, we make a sharp turn to the left. And I hope we don't do that. I hope we. Uh, we finally understand the error of our ways. And this next crisis is blamed on, on big government, central planning, on central banking, on regulation, on government spending and taxation, not the reverse. Hopefully, we can come out of this crisis with the type of free market reforms that ultimately could lead to a real sustainable recovery and a real uh, bull market in U.S. stocks, not this bubble that we got going now, both in the economy and in the market. So, again, have a very, very happy new year, and I look forward to many more podcasts, video blogs in uh, in 2017. Also, if you're not currently a client of ours, I mean, I really would encourage you to start working with us at Europe Pacific Capital. Uh, I think the, the stars are really lining up uh, for us right now. I think our strategy is going to be incredibly uh, effective, and I think the returns uh, will be great. I think we're going to do even better than we did under Bush in the early years of his presidency as that bubble started to deflate. So I think it's a great time to be moving money out of the overpriced U.S. stock market into uh, the foreign markets that we are investing in. Gold, as said, gold finally had its first up year uh, after three down years. Well, I think the gains this year are just a small down payment on much bigger gains to come in the following years. And I think as good as the gold stocks uh, did in, in 2016. They can do even better in 2017 because I don't think they're going to give up a lot of their gains in the end of the year. I think they're going to extend their gains uh, as the year ends. So it's a great opportunity, I think, to buy there. Also, if you haven't already set up your gold money account, make sure and do that as your New Year's resolution. Right, Go to goldmoney.com, open up an account, and tell all your friends. 
We need to reject fiat money all around the world. Everybody needs to put themselves on a gold standard for 2017. That's got to be your New Year's resolution to ring in the new year with a gold money account. You can go set up for free, buy yourself some gold, and understand that you can totally opt out. Eventually, you can totally opt out of fiat currencies and the banking system completely and run your entire life on gold, just like the founding fathers intended only much more efficiently because now you can spend your gold electronically uh, through the internet, through an app on your on your on your telephone, uh, through a debit card. It's much easier to be on a gold standard today than it was a couple hundred years ago uh, when we were all on a gold standard uh, legally and constitutionally. Now you gotta you know you gotta go and open up a gold money account to get on a gold standard, but it's very easy to do, and I think it's gonna be very worthwhile. So make sure not only you sign up. Uh, but get as many of your friends signed up as early in 2017 as possible. Again, Happy New Year, everybody, and I will be back again with new uh, podcast early in 2017. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Hello, this is Peter Schiff. I bet you didn't know that without silver, you wouldn't be hearing this podcast right now or be able to use a computer at all. From laptops to smartphones to TVs to speakers, virtually all modern electronics use silver to conduct electricity. Did you know that the average solar panel uses two-thirds of an ounce of silver to function? And the solar industry is expanding dramatically, not just in America, but in booming developing nations like China and India. Silver is naturally antibacterial and is used extensively in modern medicine. Silver coatings are being added to breathing tubes, bandages, catheters, and other medical instruments to reduce the spread of infections. When antibiotics fail, silver still works. I believe the 21st century will be the century of silver. As fiat currencies continue to collapse and new uses are found for silver every day, the white metal's strong industrial demand and low per ounce price will make it increasingly attractive to savers around the world. At today's prices, people of any age and background can afford to buy some silver. Learn why silver is a smart and reliable investment in my free special report, The Powerful Case for Silver. Visit shiftsilver.com and download it now. The Powerful Case for Silver includes information about silver's amazing chemical properties. It also explains why I believe silver may outperform gold in the coming years. Download The Powerful Case for Silver and educate yourself, your friends, and your family about the white metal. Just visit shiftsilver.com to download my free report. That's shiftsilver.com.